elections in Latin America give us a glimpse into the balance of forces in a country at any given moment. They are also one of the few times it seems that international media pay attention to the region. So how does the left in Latin America approach the question of elections in bourgeois democracy? The pink tide of leftist governments in Latin America showed how the quality of life of millions of people can be improved when leftist and progressive politicians are able to win state power through elections. But the conservative wave that followed also served to prove the limitations of this strategy. In places such as Ecuador and Brazil, many of the gains that were made have been lost, at least temporarily. And in a number of contests coming up soon, the left candidate is poised to win. Is this the return of the pink tide then? In this episode, we're going to look at three recent electoral processes. To look at what happened in Ecuador's recent presidential election, we speak with Nick Estes, who participated as an election observer in the most recent vote in Ecuador. We'll also take a look at the upcoming presidential elections in Peru and speak with Rosa Maria Leisaquia Vargas, Gender and Equity Secretary for the Peruvian Teachers Union, and Gaila Papuche, a Peruvian Haitian student and worker based in New York City. But we'll begin with a brief look at the results from Chile's Constituent Assembly elections. Ni doctrinas del shock, ni terapias inhumanas borrarán la convicción de lo que el pueblo reclama. Presidente bastardo, sabes que arderás en llamas. La gente está despierta, ya sabemos lo que tramas. Me cago en los pacos, en Piñera y su milicia. Me cago en el poder, en el gobierno y su avaricia. Pero llegó la hora de acabar con la codicia, aunque mi gente se desangre va con hambre de justicia. El pueblo ya no teme, no le asusta la revolución. Welcome to the third episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspectives of people on the front lines of social change and struggle in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work and activism. Raul Burbano, a Colombian community organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. Esta vez no podrán sepultar el ideal de toda una nación que despertó para luchar. La unión hace la fuerza y la fuerza la unidad. Sin dignidad no hay esperanza, ilusión ni libertad. Ni tanquetas, ni fusiles, ni pacos y detectives, ni escopetas y misiles, metralletas y civiles callarán el manifiesto de nuestro descontento. Es lo que represento hoy el pueblo somos Chile. On Sunday, May 16th, 2021. Chilean voters delivered a stunning rebuke of the old political order, electing a constituent assembly that not only totally marginalized right-wing parties, who are unable to secure a third of the seats, which would have given them veto power over the content of the new constitution, but also relegated liberal and social democratic representatives to third place, instead electing a solid block of leftist and independent candidates. In summary, the vote was a rejection of the political status quo in Chile. The results from Chile were fitting for a process that was born out of a struggle on the streets, reaching back to 2019, when protests shook the country in a firm and loud rejection of the neoliberal order. As demonstrators said back then, no son 30 pesos, son 30 años, or it's not the 30 pesos, it's the 30 years, referencing the subway fare hike that prompted the protests against 30 years of post-dictatorship neoliberalism. 
It is said that this constituent assembly has the mandate to bury Pinochet's constitution and the neoliberal economic order it enshrined. How apropos. Neoliberalism was seen to have been truly born in Chile, forced upon the people by a brutal regime. And now it will be destroyed by the Chilean people through a democratic exercise. Curiously, however, turnout was low, reaching only 42.5%, lower than the nearly 51% of voters who took part in a plebiscite in October 2019. While the low turnout can be partially explained by the effects of the ongoing pandemic, it does raise an interesting question. Surely these elections that emerged as a result of extra-parliamentary struggle would attract the participation of even the most cynical of people. But no. There are no easy answers when it comes to the question of elections in the region. As Chile shows, there are some who prefer to engage in the political struggle solely on the streets. Whatever your view on the utility of participating in bourgeois democracy, the left must ultimately wrestle with the question of elections. In this month's episode, we're going to take a dive into elections in the region by taking a look at two other recent electoral processes. The second round of voting in Ecuador that saw the right-wing neoliberal banker Guillermo Lasso defeat the progressive Correista candidate Andres Arauz, and the upcoming second vote in Peru, where the leftist Pedro Castillo, who surprised the world after coming in first place in the first round, will face off against the proto-fascist Keiko Fujimori, daughter of former Peruvian dictator Alberto Fujimori. We'll begin with the election in Ecuador. I lived and worked as a journalist for several years in Ecuador. It is a country I got to know well. I was able to witness the dramatic improvement of people's lives thanks to the changes implemented by the government of Rafael Correa in a political process deemed the Citizens' Revolution. But the process was not without its fault. The Correistas, as they are often called, had a very antagonistic relationship with elements of the indigenous movement in Ecuador. The movement also failed to adequately plan for the succession of Correa. These two mistakes ultimately played a decisive role in the suppression and eventual defeat of Correismo, at least for now. But to understand the context of these most recent elections, it is necessary to go back to the previous vote, in 2017, when Correa's vice president, Lenin Moreno, was chosen as the party's candidate. In power for 10 years and presiding over an economy that was heavily affected by the fluctuations of demand for commodities, the Correistas felt they faced an uphill battle and bet on Moreno as their best shot at defeating the right-wing candidate. Running on Correa's record, Moreno eventually won in the second round with just over 51% of the vote. But Moreno would soon show his true colors and betray the movement that brought him to power. His government made a hard right turn cozying up to the political class in the country, asking the IMF for loans, and cementing a neoliberal development plan, engaging in a vicious persecution of his former colleagues, even jailing his vice president on spurious corruption allegations. He managed to bring most of the country's institutions under his control, and became everything he claimed to have opposed previously. In short, Lenin Moreno is a traitor. Absent a party or a sufficiently organized political base outside of state institutions, the elections in Ecuador were seen as an opportunity by the Correistas to recover what had been lost as a result of Moreno's traitorous actions. Raul and I spoke with Nick Estes, citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico, 
who participated as an election observer in the recent vote in Ecuador. I mean, I've been an election observer as well. And in terms of when people talk about elections, they often think of elections that, you know, there's going to be fraud and usually it happens hard in away boxes. But the reality is that the environment in which elections take place is also very important. Can you talk a little bit about the environment the election took place in? Sure. As, as you kind of said, there, there was a media campaign. Um, uh, Guillermo Lasso was a, uh, he's a, he's a banker from the coast. Um, he funneled or he injected a lot of money. He may actually made a loan to himself for his campaign from his bank. Um, so he injected a lot of money into advertisements on social media. Um, and so there were all of these uh, really bizarre um, tactics, social media uh, tactics uh, being waged against Andres Arauz. So there was this there was this narrative that was created uh, by these this kind of social social media disinformation campaign to say that Lenin Moreno was a continuation of Carismo, and then Arauz was also a continuation of Moreno. But in fact, if you look at the record, it's actually Lasso who is allied with uh, with uh, Moreno, and in fact, Moreno implemented the neoliberal uh, restructuring programs that Lasso had advocated for in the 90s and the early 2000s when he first began running as a president. So this was a very effective campaign. The, the media played a huge role in, 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 in um, Ecuador, you know, the, the, the mainstream media is just completely dominated by the right. And so they, the uh, Andres Arauz was fighting this uphill battle all the way, whether it was even just getting on the ballot because they had trouble getting on the ballot because they didn't have a political party um, to just getting on the airwaves to get the message across. So there wasn't obviously a, a level playing field in terms of access yeah. to media, how, how, how Raus was portrayed. I even heard that, for example, you know, it was illegal for Raus's party to use the image of Correa, but the opposition or Lasso's party could use yeah. the image in a negative way. So it was, it's interesting how that all took place. So... Would you say, just to, in, in summary, that these issues that you've highlighted, can it be said that, sure, yeah, the votes at, votes at the end of the day reflected what was deposited in the ballot box, but is that really a democratic exercise? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's for the second round of votes, there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of debate about, you know, why uh, Arauz lost. And so there's been this kind of back and forth about debating whether or not the call for a null vote um, by Konae and Pachakutik actually affected the outcomes of the election. And it, it, I'll say that it did, but it's not the primary cause. Um, I would say that Citizens Revolution lost a key base of support in Quito. And we have to ask, you know, why that was, uh, because, you know, there's there's been many shifts in policy and um, you know, the kind of the, the voter demographics, I would say that young people um, that we talked to on the ground, we, we visited a lot of university uh, campuses um, where, you know, these were polling stations and young people were completely disenchanted by the process, had no um, memory of Carismo uh, and the kind of uh, the, the social gains that were made um, for the poor. Um, but but had associated Carismo solely with Moreno, uh, with uh, Lenin Moreno and his and his administration. And you know Lenin Moreno was the vice president of Rafael Correa, but completely departed from that political project. You know and actually began a lawfare campaign against um, the Caristas. But you also have the reversal of these social gains and an implementation of austerity. And to give you an example, 
in October 2019, there was a massive up uprising led primarily by Konae, the, the indigenous movements, the indigenous unions. Uh, and they took the, you know, they took the capital city and could have possibly toppled um, Lenin Moreno's uh, presidency had they, you know, had they held the city for that long because there was so much discontent. Yeah, precisely one of the things that we're looking at in, in this episode is the way that social movements, grassroots struggles, the October uprising, for example, how they interact with electoral coalitions, you know, the mm -hmm. UNES party. And in Ecuador, there's this left that drew a lot of its power from the state by winning elections. And, 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 and I would argue is a major factor why a treasonous person like Lenin Moreno was able to deliver such a crippling blow because they had nowhere else to kind of fall back on. And so, as you mentioned, one of the other factors is that really affected the results was this call for the nobles from Pachacutic and, and, its, can, and its candidate, Yacu Perez. So this divide that exists between Correismo and segments of the indigenous movements, I wouldn't say that all of the indigenous movement, but certainly major segments of it, it's not new. But mm. this time, it seems that that division played a major role in, in costing Arauz the presidency. And it brought a neoliberal banker into power. So what lessons do you think can be drawn from the Ecuadorian experience when it comes to that, that interplay between electoral coalitions and social movements? Yeah, so we had a really good conversation with one of uh, the sort of party militants of UNES about, about this exact, you know, this exact issue, this intractable kind of confrontation between Konae, Pachacutic, and um, the, uh, you know, the UNES party or the Citizens Revolution. Um, because, you know, like, I'll just give you an example. And this is what was told to me by uh, Jaime Vargas, who believes that it's better to have a left government in power because the indigenous movement, you know, he's the president of Konae, can actually make gains and demands on, you know, on the government and, and really pressure, you know, business, especially uh, corporations and banks, um, you know, and really do and damage capital, you know, in, in that particular region, which is incredibly important. And so that's why he made that decision to endorse, you know, even against his own his own uh, political party, Pachacutic, um, to endorse because he said, you know, he told us in this in this interview that, you know, the the majority of the indigenous movement supports Arauz, um, and there's been differences. You know, he's being very diplomatic. He's like, but there's been differences between the kind of right wing of Pachacutic uh, and the more the social base, uh, the unions in in Konae. So, this is, you know, this in this sense, it, it kind of. It's not a fracturing of the movement because every movement has a left and a right kind of tendency, right? And these are dynamic movements. It's not it's not enough to say that, oh, well, you know, Konae is a CIA cutout because it gets NED funding or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's been some really bad blood that has been spilled uh, in, in accusations that doesn't reflect the kind of dynamics of that social movement, because you could make the same accusation of citizens uh, revolution. You have a traitorous candidate you know, tra traitorous president, as you put it, like Lenin Moreno, right? Um, but, you know, we understand that there was, there was dynamics and there was a right wing that kind of broke off, that literally stole uh, Alianza País, right? Literally stole that political project in that name, right? So there's always going to be these kind of fracturing and these debates within movements. Um, but one of the, the primary lessons that you know that we we learned not that we learned but that people were kind of you know um conveying to us especially this the, the party militants in unis and you know they they, they said some very critical things of Konae, um, but then they admitted that the most powerful union 
in the country and the most powerful social movement is Konai. So if they're the most powerful social movement and the most powerful union, the most organized and militant union, then at some point you're going to have to negotiate. You're going to have to you know, uh, enter into some kind of agreement of, of collaboration. And for Pachakutik, you know, Pachakutik, it, it, they hold, they're the second largest party within the National Assembly or within the, their, their, congre their, their parliament, right? Next to uh, UNES. So UNES is still the dominant party, uh, even though they lost the presidency, right? They still hold a lot of the key mayorship, um, uh, mayor positions uh, and things of, of that nature, but they also have indigenous representation within the party as well. So it's not to say that like Konae or Pachakutik are the sole voice of the indigenous movement. There is a dynamic kind of collaboration that happens more at the so at the local level than it does at the national level because of those, those politics are so contentious. Um, and to kind of put this in a regional perspective, right? We can say, you know, um, and I, you know, I have my own personal <laughs> opinions about uh, what should have happened, but you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a gringo and way, and I'm just gonna let, I'm just gonna say that this is what had happened, and these are the decisions that were made. That null vote um, was made because Konae and Pachakutik actually have political power to to make that decision, and we can agree with it, we can disagree with it, but at the end of the day, they come out a little bit more on top. Um, and it was a political power move. Do I think it was the right move? I don't know. Like I don't, I don't know if I want to put, um, you know, the rest of the rest of the region, you know, uh, at risk just because we want to make a political point, right? <laughs> it seems a yeah. little bit dangerous. But you know, if you have a right wing uh, administration in um, the in the government, in the presidency, in the executive of Ecuador. They, you know they're gonna that they're gonna align with uh, Duque. They're gonna align with you know the Colombian right and and targeting you know continuing the project of targeting the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. They're gonna continue crushing indigenous people in in Colombia as well as in Ecuador as well. Like I I believe you know I my biggest fear, um, and this is kind of relayed to us in the affect of somebody like Aimee Vargas, understanding that if Arauz loses. There's a target on his back, right? Because he's he's kind of the some of the party, you know, some of the Konai leadership has turned away from him, right? So he's out on his own. So he took a huge risk, right? And I do think that Lasso will continue the lawfare campaigns to crush the left. And in this case, it means both UNES as well as Konai or the indigenous movement. Um, whether or not Konai can, you know, fight back. Is another question, but what it's all leading up to is another confrontation. Uh, that's what people were talking about, um, to, almost to the degree that we saw in 2019 in, in the October uprising. Um, but the lesson here to be learned is that, you know, despite political differences, there was a common understanding that a left government was better than be, better than Lasso, right? But there, because of the conditions of the pandemic because of the weakening of the state, the institutions of the state, even the, the, the electoral council itself, and because of the lawfare campaign, the, rep the repression of the left, both of the indigenous movement and UNES, and on top of that, the, the control, you know, the, the, the monopoly of control on the media, you're, you know, you, you're facing like four big institutions, you know, that are that are almost intractable. So what do you do? I don't, you know, there wasn't a lot of hope coming out of this, this particular election. So I mean, obviously, there are different wings within all social movements. And, you know, indigenous movements aren't unique in that perspective. 
and, and as you mentioned, you know, Jaime Vargas spoke very clearly around why he would prefer a leftist government, even though he was very critical of Correismo when he was, uh, when Correa, Correa was in power. But I think it's important for us to understand a little bit is how sometimes indigenous movements are romanticized from the North when looking into these, these struggles. So Yaku Paris was kind of romanticized, at least from the North, as, as an alternative to you know the, the indigenous the left indigenous movement or Correismo, uh, and yet you know it, it clearly has a very political at least from a Pachacuti and leadership perspective a very clear platform. And as you mentioned, it doesn't just have local ramifications; it has international ramifications in terms of support for you know right wing governments in Colombia, uh, Brazil, uh, and wherever that may be. So, can you talk a little bit about how maybe the mainstream media, at least in the north, romanticizes and kind of puts certain people? who are supportive of neoliberal policies potentially, but yet, you know, environmentalists, uh, you know, above, we never heard anything about Jaime Vargas, for example, in the mainstream media who supported Arauz. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because I would say, um, you know, here in the North, there's been a, a, a rightful criticism of things, of disciplines such as anthropo anthropology that have romanticized and trapped you know, uh, indigenous people in the past, and we're not allowed to become, you know, subjects of, of modernity. And we're always supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be against technology and development and all its forms as if development always means capitalist development, right? Um, and I would say the kind of corollary in Latin America, at least the way I understand it, is something a project called indigenismo, which is uh, not necessarily, um, you know, it's it was mainly started by academics, right? In, in this idea that there's this kind of indigenous uh, worldview that's pure, that's one with nature, that understands you know, all of these things without under actually understanding the class character of indigenous societies or the class character of indigenous movements. And that somebody like Yaku Perez represents a kind of, uh, I can't remember the exact trend, I can't remember the exact uh, Spanish term, but it means golden robes, <laughs> um, like the kind of elite uh, kind of right wing of, of the indigenous movement, right? That is more aligned with the right uh, in terms of neoliberal policies and then can adopt things like feminism or eco-feminism or eco-socialism or social, socialism or you know, indigenous rights as a framework to, to criticize. And it's not to say that there weren't mistakes made by the Korea government that led to these kind of intractable differences that we talked about earlier but they're definitely exploited um, by these kind of figures of, of the right. And they use what you know, we in the North call identity politics to beat over the head you know, their, their opposition. In this case, it's, it's UNES, right? They're, or what they would consider their enemies. But it's not reflective of the entire you know, indigenous movement. And you have to wonder what are those relationships to uh, candidates such as Yaku Perez and the corporate media and you know the kind of you, we didn't even talk about the U.S. Embassy and their role in in you know in in the in the rights campaign and how they facilitated and helped negotiate this kind of electoral fraud accusation that was leveled primarily from Yaku Perez in alliance with Lasso, right? And you'll hear Konae say we never side with the right, but why do we allow? You know, my question was like, then why do you allow? you know, somebody like Yaku Perez to openly negotiate with the right and openly let his candidates, you know, his vice presidential candidates support the right. And there's no retrib or there's no backlash. There's more, there's more to get into in that, in that sense. But I'll say this as an example, 
So in the United States, prior to uh, Deb Holland, who's uh, from the Laguna Pueblo, and she was just recently tapped by the Biden administration to be the part of the Department of Interior. But prior to her nomination and becoming a cabinet, uh, accepting that cabinet level position, there were six uh, indigenous candidates or six indigenous representatives in the US Congress. Three of them were right-wing Trump Republicans, right? So indigeneity is not uh, automatically associated with left and progressive politics. If we just look at how you know politics actually work, that's a great lead into our next question. So one of the things that I've analyzed, looking at Latin America, one of the things that leftist governments have struggled with is finding the balance between using the state to redistribute the country's wealth and resources with respect for indigenous sovereignty. Right? And, mm -hmm. and you, you pointed out as some of the errors of Correismo factored into how the election played out. I'd argue this criticism about not respecting indigenous sovereignty is probably the most common when you hear from leftists about progressive governments in the region. But I also think that some of those criticisms have been weaponized by bath faith mm -hmm. actors who are seeking to destabilize. And I think about Bolivia, for example, you know, trying to pin the forest fires on Evo Morales when the problem is more complicated than that. So what, what can you tell us about the need for anti-capitalist struggles and movements throughout the continent? And we can talk about North and South America to, to incorporate indigenous worldviews into their analysis and to fight for indigenous treaty rights, land restoration, sovereignty, self-determination, decolonization. Because I think sometimes it seems like the ask only goes one way. It's like, oh, indigenous people have to come join our coalition. But what are, what are, what are these leftist projects lacking in order to actually bring indigenous peoples into, into their movements? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really good question. But let's, let's name names. I mean, who was the person who accused, um, who, who was the person who most famously accused Evo Morales of committing ecocide and genocide uh, and burning down the Amazon rainforest completely unfounded. It was Manuela Pike, who is the wife of Yacu Perez, right? So we, there, there is a group of people who, you know, are Latin Americanists uh, and, uh, you know, Latin American studies people um, who, just like there are people in Native American studies here in Canada and the United States who align themselves with the interests of empire and align themselves with imperialism. So that's not, that's not a revelation. Like we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's, that's what the state has always done. It has always conscripted, you know, scouts and conscripted people against each other, you know, indigenous people against other indigenous people. That's the nature of colonialism. There's this idea in the North, uh, kind of an extremist, I would call it an extremist idea around extractivism, as if extractivism exists across, you know, is the same across space and time. So what happens is that you have, you know, Evo Morales, you have, uh, you know, these, these left uh, um, states who are making political gains, um, but they're doing so under the condition of duress, right? Because there's always these constant, the constant threat of US intervention. You know, there was actually several assassination attempts on Evo Morales, on Rafael Correa, on Maduro, on, on uh, you know, Hugo Chavez, the list goes on and on. So we have, to, we have to understand the conditions in which these projects are created uh, and understand that like these situations between indigenous uh, movements may not always be the best because they're fighting an external enemy, you know, uh, and they're also trying to build a social alternative which may, you know, you're always going to run into conflict. We'll hear more from Nick Estes at the end of the program. It should come as no surprise that some of the same issues we explored with him are also present in the political arena in Peru, which will hold a runoff vote on June 6th 
pitting the leftist Pedro Castillo against Keiko Fujimori. Castillo surprised everyone by coming in first place in the first round. A candidate that was so unknown, CNN and Español did not even have an image ready for him as they broadcast the results the night of the election. To provide us with the context of the political situation in Peru, we spoke with Rosa Maria Lesaquilla Vargas, Gender and Equity Secretary for the Peruvian Teachers Union. The interview has been edited for length. Lo que sucede es que eh, acá nos han gobernado por años la derecha neoliberal. Por años, muchos años. The neoliberal right has governed us for years, for many years, and there's a candidate that represents what we call Fujimoriism. It's a caste. Fujimoriism is a caste. In this electoral process, in the first round, Castillo, as you pointed out, was not widely seen. He did not appear. And today we find ourselves in this situation in which the population, the majority, says change or continuity. And what is the message that this extreme left group has? The poor versus the rich, or the rich versus the poor, the urban zone versus the rural zone, and it is resonating. What do we do as a union in light of this? We are a union that brings together many groups, but we say we are a united front. We are a union that is united in what? A program, a series of demands. And Castillo is hoisting up people who are opposed to a gender-based approach in education. And it worries me, the union and feminist movements. These two candidates that are in the second round, the extreme right through Kiko and the extreme left through Castillo, are opposed to a gender-based approach, which has taken us many years of struggle to put into our school curriculum. We are very worried. However, we are not going to vote for Fujimoriism. We are not going to vote for Fujimoriism. We are holding assemblies where we are reaching agreements to vote for the Peru Libre Party that Castillo is running with, so that he will follow through on his fundamental promise of a new constitution, because that is what he has promised, a change of the constitution. And if he does not deliver a new constitution, we will take to the streets, because we will not give him a blank check. This pandemic has shown here in Peru how the right has governed in the last few decades in the areas of education and healthcare. People die every day here in Peru, every day. A few days ago, my husband died. We all got infected. Leaders of the union at the national level have died. People from here, there, everywhere. Why? Because we cannot get medical attention. This is a reflection of how the neoliberal model has been operating. It is obvious that Castillo's proposals are correct. They are correct. That is why we as a union are working, because we must keep the following in mind. We are members of the national leadership, and there is a trade union structure. The union leadership is in agreement. In fact, teachers in general, that we must say no to Kiko. But there are some that call for a spoiled ballot, and we are trying to make them understand that a spoiled or null vote is not the correct tactic. It is not right. The left has signaled its backing of Pedro Castillo, but not a blank check, but support where we make clear that, at the right time, we will demand he fulfill his promises. We must remember that the results for the Congress show it is divided, very divided, where Peru Libre with Pedro has approximately 32 lawmakers, and the rest are right-wing. We have a lot of hope, the people have a lot of hope, because we are tired of these governments that haven't done anything for the people in general. They have done absolutely nothing. We said, this pandemic has truly shown the situation we find ourselves in. 
And today we find ourselves fundamentally engaged in much more political struggle, ideological struggle, even with teachers who are right-wing. They do exist. There are some who still believe that those who oppose Kiko are communists or that they must be communists. People are tired of that, so we must debate, try to convince them. That is what we are doing, trying to find the ways to build unity. We opened the program talking about Chile's fight to bury Pinochet's constitution. To get to this point, Chileans had to put their lives on the line, literally, battling the state and its security forces. Such was the ruling class's resistance to the refounding of the country through a new constitution. This idea of changing a country's constitution to better reflect the desires of the country's working class, indigenous, and campesino majorities is not new to Latin America. We saw it in Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia. And as we heard from Rosa Maria, it is one of the proposals from Castillo that has many social movements and activists in Peru excited about his candidacy. To further explore this and more, Raul and I spoke with Gaila Papuche, a Peruvian-Haitian student and worker based in New York City and founder of an organization called Pumas, a Peruvian collective that seeks to build political consciousness among Peruvians in the diaspora and build links with Peruvians fighting inside the country. I think it's interesting to see his political program. I think a lot of him reminds me of Evo Morales. It reminds me of Rafael Correa, of Lopez Obrador, and in, 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 in more than one way. We'll get to that in a little bit. But just looking at, for example, you know, there's the proposal to to call for a, a constituent assembly, right? There's the call for nationalizing strategic resources, about making the Supreme Court elected, or increasing the funding for education. So, I mean, these are serious proposals that could really fundamentally change a lot of aspects of the Peruvian economy and society. But as you said, that this is really just the latest chapter in what is a centuries-long struggle. Are the proposals that he is proposing, these the ones that I just mentioned as an example, is it enough to really address the political instability that exists in Peru? It's a start, but ultimately nothing can can fundamentally change until there there happens to be what Chile is doing, which is creating a new constitution. This constitution that we live under, the 1993 constitution, is one that is a, a created out of the dictatorship of Fujimori and establishes neoliberalism as the ideology of the state, as the economy of the state. And it is really, it is leading to what is, if, if Peru stays on the same path, no matter who the president is, Peru will see its ultimate collapse. Um, it's just a plethora in this constitution that is set to protect the bourgeoisie, protect the political elite, and, all, and you know, just wash away their crimes. And Peruvian people have had enough. You know, you can see it so much in, in the life of the people where they just completely have complete apathy for the entire system. Nobody trusts the judges. They don't trust the politicians. They don't trust their mayor. How many times more do you hear about corruption scandals? And it's it doesn't come out of a vacuum. So it, there has to be a constitutional change. And just like in Chile, they have to make it a popular constitutional change. But Pedro Castillo has said that he wants to do that. Um, there's some critiques, you know, mostly coming from the North and, and some of those in the university in Lima that his, his you know, conservative views on in social aspects are, you know, some reactionary ones. Pedro Castillo does 
resemble more of the Peruvian masses where it's socially conservative. But anyway, there's there's critiques from those in the universities and those in the Western world that his uh, social conservatism is is disgusting. It's reactionary. It's terrible. He's he's a, a Nazball or or a, a red fascist or whatever. But well, he said himself, whatever the Peruvian people want, we will make through a constitutional assembly. And that in conjunction with the rest of his policies will create a new Peru. What they say, refundar el Peru, create a new Peru. And um, we'll see. So about that issue of the his conservative positions on, on social issues, it's actually something that we see here in Mexico as well, right? I, I, one of the major opposition forces of the López Obrador government hasn't come from the political parties, but in fact has come from the feminist movement. Uh, and I think sometimes that's actually weaponized outside of the country in order to try to reduce the kind of international solidarity that they might normally receive under different circumstances. What do you say to to the people who zero in as if it's the way to try to absolve themselves of the responsibility to try to extend a, a hand of solidarity to, to the political process of Latin America? Look, I myself consider myself a feminist. I that's how I got into politics through feminism, and I, you know I'm never, especially since I've been raised in the United States, I'm never going to say that these social issues are to be done with. But there's a couple of things here. You know, th- from the international aspect, when you are not part of this country, when you are not a part of this nation, and you don't even know how these people are, you can sit there in your ivory tower and judge them and think, well, this one candidate is too reactionary. But this this is this is the reality of the social discourse in this country. So you can't really sit there in the ivory tower and tell them you need to do this and you need to do that because there was a movement in this country, in Canada, in the West, way longer than there was a movement over there. And it's not to say that, you know, they're more regressive. It's just the difference with the power of the church, with the power of the state. It's just a different historical process. And they're going to have that process. Of course, that's going to happen, but that can only happen with a material change. Pedro Castillo himself and Peru Libre says themselves, what the people want in a constitution, they will have. If this is something that is popular within the people, then we can do that. It is all about a conversation. It is all about, you know, working and changing it. But none of this can change if we are continuing to live under neoliberalism. It, you know, take a look at the United States, right? We we have uh, some, you know, huge conversations about racial discrimination, about feminist discrimination. We have a huge LGBTQ movement, but does it really matter when the police are still murdering black people on the street, when you still have trans people denied housing, denied jobs, still sleeping homeless? Like, does it really matter if the, if the dictatorship recognizes your humanity, but still treats you subhuman versus, you know, you get all, you have all the, the material conditions that you need? We can have that struggle and it's important to have that struggle. And it's not to say that we need to, you know, throw it to the wayside, but it's important to remember that none of that can change until we change the material conditions and we change the the way that the economy runs in Peru. And for those that are international and, you know, don't live in Peru, don't live in South America, your position there is to stand in solidarity with the popular sectors of Peru to make sure that your countries are not sanctioning Peruvian people, trying to steal their resources, you know, funding death squads like the United States did with Colina Group. That's your art, you know, our job. And that's my job here, too, in, in the United States is to, you know, fight against the imperialist lies and fight against these transnational corporations and support what the Peruvian people want. I think you said the key thing is that, you know, it's a dialogue and it's a process, right? If some of these conservative values are common in rural areas in the global south, 
I mean, it's not something that, you know, any leader can impose or that we can impose from the West in terms of values or, or beliefs to people who live in the global South. So it is a process. And I think that's really important. Talk a little bit about what, you know, a, 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 if a leftist government, Pedro Garcia, was elected, what that would mean regionally. Not to over-dramatize Peru's role today, because I think that Colombia is, is definitely more of a, a heart of an imperialism in its strategic location, but Lima is definitely one of, of the a heart of the of the bourgeoisie in in South America, especially for the Western uh, bourgeoisie that likes to have their power there. It is why the South American Alliance Group against Venezuela is called Lima Group. It is based in Lima, and so if we see a, a progressive turn in Peru. I think that would be one that supports the progressive turn that's also happening in Chile. I think it's one that would be reuniting with Bolivia. So it is an opportune time uh, for Peru to, you know, I mean, better time, better now than never, better, you know, better late than never. Would be important, that's for sure. One of the things we wanted to to explore in this episode, as I mentioned, is precisely uh, that I think sometimes, especially abroad, people view the balance of forces in a kind of really mechanical way. Who's in power? Right? Is, did the left or the right wing? But even though we, we recognize that this is a historic moment for Peru because we have a left wing candidate from a left wing party in the runoff, what does the future of Peru look like in terms of the balance of forces on the streets and in, in the movements? Right? You know, I, I think about the situation of Lula's first term in Brazil, where they, this, a lot of social movements, key ones like the MST, literally signed a truce saying, we're not going to agitate under your government. What is the situation in Peru? Is it like, let's say Castillo wins, the polls indicates they do. What's that going to look like in terms of what the movements on the street, what the youth, what the working class can agitate? No, that's such a correct point. A lot of people will say like, oh, look, this is a leftist government. Therefore, all the people are leftist because, I mean, maybe the popular sectors did vote for him. What makes it a little difficult because it is Keiko Fujimori is that you do have a lot of people who are just voting for uh, Castillo, just so the fact that they can't get Keiko Fujimori. They don't want Keiko. What scares me a little bit is with you know Pedro Castillo's, so, and you mentioned this with AMNO too, with his social positions is that, so, you know, I am Afro-Peruvian myself. You know, my father, his his mother is Haitian. Um, you know, we are, we are like my father said, we are black, but there is a group in, and, and this isn't, you know, this isn't to say that social issues don't matter, but there is a group in Peru that is funded by the United States. It is funded by the NED. It's uh, called Ashanti Peru. And, you know, they're an advocacy group that is also, you know, coming out with some very strange anti-Pedro Castillo sentiments. And then they use the identity as a a way to say, well, we're against it because of this. And this is something that we're going to see. We're going to see, you know, the feminist movement, the liberal feminist movement, say these things we're going to see liberal sectors uh, the identity politics that are all you know subvertedly or covertly funded through the united states and we're going to see a lot more ned funding into these uh, identity identitarian advocacy groups in peru you know something i've been thinking about as, as a fear that yes i want him to win but also this is going to be quite scary it's going to be the wedge issue we saw it for, for example a little bit in ecuador with the indigenous movement right a lot of the indigenous mm. movement was to some extent a part of it was co-opted around environmental issues and it became a wedge issue for correa and to this day i mean it's you know it's caused him in, in the connection with his party i would say the elections right in the last round so i mean i, I think it's interesting how, how that takes place same thing with bolivia with joana bacadasa and rios de pie 
who were suddenly, almost from one day to the next, were the voices when it came to environmentalism in, in Bolivia, when they were not based in the countryside, when they had no real history of movements in the countryside, where it was a way to try to make it seem that Evo Morales was responsible for, for the fires, right? And like, I think that's probably what we're going to see, who's going to be that person in Peru. And it's likely to be something, somebody that, that tries to, to exploit precisely those issues. One of the aims of this program is to compel people in the United States and Canada to become better informed about the role played by imperialism in the politics and processes of Latin America. So in that light, to end today's program, we're going to close with commentary from Nick Estes about people-to-people relations between the peoples of the Americas. The, the politics in Canada and the United States are very provincial. Um, that's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it's a social phenomenon. It's a political phenomenon. And I think that has to do uh, uh, a lot with the fact that both are, both are imperialist powers um, that weigh heavily on the, the destinies uh, you know, um, of Latin American you know, social movements. Um, so we, I would say, have more to learn from them. And viewing, you know, in, in, in my case, for example, being indigenous in the United States, but then also being part of the United States who participates in these interventions puts me in a different position, right? Because I get to see, quote unquote, my country from the outside and what it actually does in other places. And there are similarities, uh, really strong similarities and parallels to what happened to indigenous people, what happened to, you know, uh, Mexicans uh, in the annexation of, you know, the a third of their country and the colonization by uh, settler colonialism, as well as what has happened to, uh, you know, black people in these countries that they are in, in very, in very, you know, strong senses of the word, uh, colonies of the United States, and you know, Puerto Rico, like, is is a colony. So too is like Guam and and other places. But there are, it's it's one thing to understand the domestic politics, which we are heavily invested in, uh, and we have to be, and we have to stay up to date. But we also have to understand, you know, there's a critical dialectic between what, ha- you know, the domestic policy and foreign policy. And that the the gains that workers and social movements make in the imperial core, whether it's in Canada or the United States, shouldn't come at the expense of the rest of the world. And in fact, we need less of that provincialism and more internationalism. We need more understanding, more humanism in, in our approaches in the North. And that begins by understanding the devastating effects of things such as US intervention, sanctions. You know, in Canada would be the mining regimes that exist all over, you know, that, that colonize the global South uh, and understand that Canada or the United States isn't a quote unquote rich country because they just work better. It, it's a rich country because it's plundering, you know, both countries are rich countries because they're plundering the rest of the planet. And in fact, levels of inequality in the United States in some instances are greater than the countries in the global South. And that we understand that people in the US just because you're working class doesn't mean you benefit from these projects. But in fact, um, if we understood how US imperialism worked, how Canadian imperialism worked better, we can make better you know, social gains for our movements a- a- in the imperial core if we're operating in tandem with you know, the South, because frankly, we're holding back the rest of the world. That's the program for today. Thank you again for listening. Please share it with your friends and colleagues. And as always, you can reach out to me personally and provide your feedback. My handle is at Granado Ceja, 
G-R-A-N-A-D-O-S-C-E-J-A on all social media platforms. We also encourage you to check out the Red Nation's book, The Red Deal, which our guest Nick Estes is involved with. It looks at the question of how to organize according to the principles of indigenous peoples. We'll see you next time. And hasta la victoria siempre. It's a plan that we created uh, kind of in response to the Green New Deal, but thinking about um, how do we organize according to uh, the principles of indigenous people, because indigenous people are the forefront of the climate justice movement. But at the same time, understanding that we can't just, you know, like things like the Green New Deal and its most kind of right uh, wing formation or right wing application requires the plundering of the rest of the planet for, you know, green renewable technology. And we can't have that. And so we have to have a, a better, more robust, holistic vision um, that comes from the south down into the left, as we like to say, uh, versus from up into the right. <laughs> so um, you can check out the book. It's it's written for and by uh, indigenous activists, um, you know, and lay people. It's not it's not an academic book. It came from the movement itself, and so I highly recommend it. Um, there's kind of practical steps that people can take in trying to implement policy um, that is more effective than just trying to maintain levels of consumption in the north. When we talk about transition, um, we don't all need to just drive cars and move to electric cars. We should ask, ask, ask ourselves what are socially responsible ways to you know, travel and to, um, to live, right? And redefine what development means according to principles that are in align with indigenous um, worldviews as well as uh, um, what's best for humanity and the planet itself. Esta vez no podrán sepultar el ideal de toda una nación que despertó para luchar. La unión hace la fuerza y la fuerza la unidad. Sin dignidad no hay esperanza, ilusión ni libertad. Ni tanquetas, ni fusiles, ni pacos y detectives, ni escopetas y misiles, metralletas y civiles callarán el manifiesto de nuestro descontento. Es lo que represento y el pueblo somos Chile. El sonido del casero lazo, opacado por el ruido de un balazo.